Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book six of The Dark Tower, Song of Susanna, stanzas five through seven. Let's start the show. We start this section with Mia and Susanna continuing their conversation in the park. Susanna finds a scrimshaw turtle in the bag holding Black 13. This turtle seems to have a power over people. Susanna uses it to have a man rent a hotel room for them. There, Mia and Susanna have a palaver, which actually requires them to toadash to the castle on the abyss. Mia provides Susanna with information about the lineage of their chap. A phone ringing in the hotel brings them back to New York City in 1999, where Richard Sayer orders them to the Dixie Pig, where Mia will have the baby. He also tells Susanna that Balazar's men have set an ambush for Roland and Eddie. Unexpectedly in New England, Roland and Eddie are able to escape the ambush with the help of a man named John Cullum. So, Sean. Yes, Jay. We finally spent a lot of time with Mia in this section of the book, but as much as we learned about her, it's like, it just made me ask so many more questions. Like, who or what is Mia? Because my initial assumption was that she was yet another facet of the, or personality in the Odetta, Detta Susanna person that we know. Yes. But she goes on to reveal information and her physical appearance would make us think that she is not part of Susanna at all. Because she's white and has legs? Well, there's that, but I think that's less important than the fact that she seems to have knowledge of Roland's world and the Crimson King, and she's had conversations with people that Susanna has never encountered. She's made deals with people, apparently. How could another identity in the same mind and body of Odetta Holmes, as as she was originally named and, and identified herself, where does Mia come from? And it feels like it's not from within Susanna. No, because I thought the same thing, that she was going to be another personality or identity within this body, but she seems to be more than that. And there's hints that she might be a some sort of demon. We get that whole lineage of what types of demons exist in Roland's world from the 12 main demons who are the sort of the other side of the coin of the 12 guardians of the beam to the mm-hmm. House demons who are like ghosts who just roam about in the the talking demon that Roland encountered in the gunslinger. And she might possibly one of these be these types of demons, but it's not really understood and she herself doesn't isn't able to answer that. Yeah. When Susanna asks. And it's only during this time where the the magic of the Todash environment enables them to face each other and have a conversation as two separate people that Susanna even realizes that she doesn't resemble her in any way physically. And that's a total change from the other personalities or or I'm sorry, the other identities that she's manifested in the past. It would be interesting if she were a twin or a reflection of some kind, but she's not, she doesn't look like Susanna at all. And she also has legs. Right. So what she really is, is an info dump brought to life. Yeah. The second 
stanza of this section, stanza six, is really a info dump of the highest proportions where we we get that demon lineage. We get the understanding of the 12 demons that reflect the 12 guardians. We understand more about Roland. We get this whole understanding of where the chap that's inside them came from with this very circuitous realm of where Roland Seaman has gone to and from. Yeah. Throughout this entire story, Roland Seaman has had its own adventure of its own as it makes its way to to Susanna it's been eventually. In the, the Midworld Sperm Bank for <laughs> yeah. uh, several books. Held in a a female demon that turns into a male demon that then reimplants it. Uh the worst surrogate ever. The old fashioned way. The old fashioned way, as it were, with <laughs> demons and whatnot. But you know, a lot of this is we're getting late in the game and King has a lot to tell us. And rather than spend another 600 pages sort of mapping this all out, he just gives us good old Mia to just sort of tell us everything. And here you go. And we understand a little bit of Mia's motivation, which is she'll have an opportunity to raise this child as her own yeah, before she eventually has to give it up to the Crimson King. And it's not clear exactly what happens to me at that point, but it doesn't seem like it'll be anything good, I don't think. Or even how long that little while will be, Yeah, right? It, you know, it's like it could be five seconds. You know, it's like, okay, the baby's born. You're done. Yeah. And, and, and Suzanne is using that, right? Having Mia inside her head, they have this connection. And Suzanne is able to occasionally bring herself to the front, much like we saw Roland bring himself to the front when he was in Eddie and... Odetta. So Mia, or I'm sorry, Susanna has this ability to not only bring herself to the front and start to question Sayer when they're on the phone together and try to put a wedge in between them, but even ask questions about to Mia and say, are you sure this is what's going to happen or what side are you on? And by the end of the section, Mia is starting to question what her role is in this. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point that this is the same construct that King established in book two when Roland went through each door and his consciousness, and I think he even referred to it as his ka at that point, yeah. was, was in the mind of Eddie. It was in the mind of Susanna. And then later, uh, and then finally in the mind of Jack Mort, where he could at any given time exert his will either partially or completely over the person that he was inside. So this wasn't a second split personality or a second disassociative identity this was another person yeah through the magic of the doors on the beach in one instance through some other magic i guess in this instance and maybe it's through the magic of being pregnant or being impregnated by the the demon in the speaking circle i would agree with that i i think that that's part of it but all of those points lead me to believe that Mia is not a personality, or if it is, no. it's a very minor one that really they are much more separate than Detta and Odetta and Suzanne are. And I kind of like the idea that maybe it is, in fact, some piece of the demon that got her pregnant when they were rescuing Jake, that that demon kind of, in addition to depositing Roland's sperm, apparently, that it also kind of left an, an imprint of itself. Yeah in Susanna and that was there so that it could become the mother it could become the vessel that gets pregnant not Susanna's physical body but the demon's possession yeah 
of her body. And that's why Susanna didn't show physical signs of being pregnant. But when she sees Mia as a separate person, Mia is very pregnant. So then that's very weird because when, then we have Roland depositing his sperm in the female demon, the female demon becoming the male demon, and then the male demon redepositing Roland's sperm into Susanna, who is in reality a potential other female demon. So Mia, mother of none, is actually sort of, to some extent, mother and father of herself, if we want to think about it that way. Yeah. One last piece is Mia also puts a little hint in Susanna's mind that Roland's not sure his quest for the tower might not be to save it. It might just be to go there. And an intriguing little throwaway, it's not a throwaway line, they, they spend a little bit of time talking about it, but she questions what Susanna knows about why Roland's on this quest for the tower. And that's something you and I have talked about, how I'm not really clear what Roland's supposed to do when he gets to the tower. Mm-hmm. And Mia sort of says, oh, well, he's not going to do anything. He just wants to see it. Yeah, did he ever say what he's going to yeah. do? Did he ever tell you his plan? And Susanna had to admit that, no, he hadn't. She only knows as far as we need to get there. Yes. And Mia seems to think that that might be it, that once you get there, you get there. And that's what's going to happen. So whether or not that plays out with any sort of relationship that Susanna has with Roland in the near future and what that's going to look like, I don't know. But I I found that fascinating because it has been something that I've been thinking about as well. well. Let's move on to the turtle, Maturin, as he is called, one of the guardians of the beam. As I mentioned in the intro, Susanna finds a scrimshaw turtle inside the bowling bag that's holding Black 13. It's been hinted at since the end of the last book. Is that right, Jay? Almost like the the middle of it. Yeah, they mentioned that there's something else in the bag, but oh, we're not going to look at that now. It's one of those yeah. Stephen King hints yeah. that'll come up later. So we have this turtle and it seems to have some sort of powers. And remember last episode, we talked about how Susanna reflects on how each of the three that have been brought into Roland's world has some sort of power. Jake's ability to have the shine, basically, yeah. and Susanna's ability to can imagine things into existence and the fact that Eddie can create through his carvings things that have some sort of essence or power. Right. They're, they can be like totems. And she seems to think that this turtle is something along those lines. While Eddie hasn't created it, it does seem to have some sort of powers and people are drawn to it. There's a couple of Girl Scouts in the park. There's a Scandinavian man who's drawn to it and using it. Susanna is able to almost hypnotize or at least push and give suggestions to these people to make them do things that they might not otherwise do, as well as cure the Scandinavian man's uh, constipation problems. Yeah. I mean, it's like all hail the hypno turtle. (laughs) It's like an instantaneous hypnotism. Anybody who sees it is immediately drawn to it completely, and they're just in awe of it and they're in a highly suggestible state eventually they will ask to hold it and possess it and have it and keep it for themselves and as soon as Susanna says no they don't they don't just try to snatch it and take it away they just they start crying or or weeping or, or their whole body is just full of complete despair that they can't possess this wonderful object so it gives her a talisman of sorts to help her as she's traversing this otherwise 
unfriendly place full of strangers who would not be inclined to help her, let alone do her harm. So right. it's pretty handy for her to have that. She's in New York City without any money and any place to go, and she's able to turn that turtle into a hotel room, get some cash, bribe the hotel clerk by making mm-hmm. her think things. It was pointed out to me in the Bev Vincent book that this is similar to the powers that Drew Barrymore's father has in Firestarter. Yeah, that's right. He's able to push things and make people think that they're seeing something that they're not seeing. So, Yeah, and they, they, they call that in Firestarter is the push. The push, yeah. I always thought that that was sort of cool. Of course, you mm-hmm. don't... Susanna doesn't have the side effect of blood coming down her nose like Eleven. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Hmm, I wonder where they got that idea. Yeah. Wait, Stranger Things is inspired by Stephen King stuff? <laughs> Hadn't noticed. <laughs> An interesting side effect of the power of the turtle is that not only does it put the people that can see it in this very suggestible state, but it also seems to, in some way, expose the magic beneath the world Mm. as if the reality that everybody that that Susanna encounters in New York is just a veneer over something else and that something else is an awareness of and even an existence within the magical world of Roland's world because this random hotel clerk this random Scandinavian businessman uh, visiting New York for a work reason they have no reason to suddenly start speaking in the vernacular of midworld. They have no reason to be aware of things like the Crimson King and this Discordia place that we've just started to learn about. So the turtle has some clearly very powerful magic. Yeah. That the longer you spend staring at it or holding it or just being entranced by it, the more the the real world starts to fade away and the the underlying world of fantasy that is King's world, that is Roland's world, starts to, to show through. And that's what made me kind of think of, is the turtle kind of like a concentrated thinny, like a pocket-sized thinny that is in the shape of a turtle, that the more time you spend around it, you start to sort of pass through all of the worlds yeah. or become aware of them, the, the multitudes of worlds uh, that are just echoes of each other in every direction. Yeah, I think that that's right, that it, it does seem to have that similar effect, that, that it's the that boundary between the worlds where it gets loose and thin there. So I think that, that that's a good piece. And it, it comes right on just previous to when Suzanne and Mia have their discussion about the magic that's in the world and how this whole discussion of where the beams came from, where the tower came from, the idea of the prim or the over and this swirling of magic that was then replaced by the machines as the magic went away and now the machines are running down and that's what's causing all these problems with the beams and the dark tower and having a little bit of that magic still left even if it's in just a small little turtle is a remnant of that that still exists yep the last cough i don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this jay because it's a it's a horse we've been beating for months now but king again uses literature as a storytelling device in here And what I wanted to point out is when they have their palaver, there's a mention of the Red Death, and immediately Susanna thinks of Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death and what that's going to be like because that's what Mia brings up. And then 
later on they're talking about Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man, and then finally they talk about the legend of Arthur, and they Mia makes this decision to name the child Mordred. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to talk about that's a little bit different when Eddie's before has always just made references to things. Yeah. So like I know about Shardick, I know about Tom Wolf's You Can Never Go Home Again. And it's more interesting that Eddie knows that and just sort of callbacks to these other fictional works. But I think this section is the first time where Susanna starts to make this connection between what is literature and what is the real world. And she says something about the Mask of the Red Death, and it's along the lines of, well, maybe that's where this came from, or maybe there really will be a plague or a disease that's like that in this world. It made me think of that when, you know, when when we got the Wizard of Oz references, everyone just sort of said, oh, I know what to do. And they treated it like a, this is just a test. How do we get into the Crimson or the Emerald City? We have to click our heels. But now... At least Susanna seems to be saying, here is a reference to literature. It could potentially come to life or I may be able to encounter it. And I think that that's the first time that in the series that we're starting to make those direct connections. It's when the characters themselves are making these connections, right? They're becoming aware of their nature as elements of a story because so much of what they have always considered reality has a distinct reflection or echo of something that is has been a work of fiction. Right. This is something that I think King stumbled into and then very carefully helped to grow into something that I think is a, a really cool device. As early as book one, when he says, Roland heard Hey Jude being played on the piano at Sheb's bar. Then, when he first wrote that line, he was not thinking that this was another world or even that it was necessarily a post-apocalyptic one. This was just a Western. So, of course, he put pop culture music that he knew in the, the words of the book. But by the time we get to book two, and certainly by book three, this has changed completely for King. And now we know this is a parallel world, and this is the existence of Hey Jude, but it's slightly modified lyrics is because one world has informed the other. Yep. And we don't know, and it kind of maybe doesn't matter which direction it started from, but we know that it ended up in both. And that idea, I think, is what has blossomed into this notion that Susanna is kind of facing head-on here that was Poe inspired by something that happened in Roland's world that was called the Red Death, some vast plague that wiped out huge populations. And then that leaked into Poe's time period. And he thought of, ah, I'm going to write a story about this. Yep. Uh, call it Mask of the Red Death. Or is it the other way around? Did the fact that Poe made up a story about this, that somehow that leaked back into Roland's world and it became a real thing that really killed people. And I think that's fascinating that that possibility exists. And it's frightening, too. If you were Susanna, oh, man, everything that anybody ever made up in a book might actually happen for real in this place. Like, that's bad. And there's a lot of really bad things happening. And we haven't seen him since the first or second chapter, but that's really what Father Callahan's dealing with. Yeah. 
the fact that, oh, I picked up this book and there's a character named Father Callahan and all of the things that are written down here are things that happened to me. And I think he's starting to question, am I a fictional character or not? And Suzanne has taken it one step further here, unaware of that, but what's this Red Death look like? So I think that's why I wanted to pull out this literature as a storytelling device, just because it's a little bit different. What do you think about The Legend of Arthur and Mordred, Jay? Uh, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of what King has done here, I should clarify. I actually am a huge fan of The Legend of Arthur. I've read and watched just about every interpretation and iteration of the tale, and I like all of it. But I was never really happy that King decided to connect and structure Roland's backstory around this King Arthur myth. I thought that it was too obvious, too popular. I mean, I guess if he had done something with Lord of the Rings characters, it would have been even more on the on the nose, yeah. and that would have been even more irksome to me. But for somebody who is as well-read and as deeply moved by so many genres and, sh- and so many works, why would he choose one that is like just so ubiquitous. I felt that this was just too easy to grasp onto, to attach his story to. He might be saying something just in that, like, well, of course it's the King Arthur tale. What did I just say about how the two worlds leech into one another and where else would you go? But maybe it's because I am such a fan of King Arthur and the myths and legends around that, that I wanted something new and original from King and new and original for Roland's world and Roland's story, not just a rehash of some story arc that I, I kind of already know. When we started hearing the line of Eld and Arthur Eld and all that stuff, it was subtle enough or unimportant enough or background enough that it was okay. But when we get to the point where we're going to name a character Mordred, like, oh man, you know, you couldn't even like do something similar to Mordred. It just felt unimaginative and lazy. You know, it's almost like maybe King wrote Mordred in his first draft thinking, I'll go back and write a better name later and then just never did. It just irks me. Well, it's not King who's lazy. It's Mia who's picking it out of Susanna's mind. Sure. From when she took that Arthurian Legends class in her years in college in the early 60s. Right. Because that's the only story that Susanna knows where a son is prophesied to murder his father, right? <laughs> that's a cliche as old as stories. True enough. True enough. Well, we'll have to see if any more uh, literary devices come in. And like I said, we haven't gotten back to Father Callahan, and I wonder what sort of existential crisis he's going through right now because we haven't had a chance to delve into that. So I'm sure that'll be coming up soon. We have one section left in today's podcast, and that is the gunfight in Maine, Jay, which is a fantastic set piece Yes, that is very reminiscent, at least in my mind, of the gunfight that Eddie and Roland had back in book two against Balazar's men. And in fact- It's all the same guys. It's a lot of the same guys that they blew away the first time. They're gonna they're gonna have to do the same thing this time, except they're doing it in this uh it's almost like a it's not a western town, but I did get this sense of a very lonely town in the middle of nowhere with just a general store in it and a gas station and a very empty town except for 
the two people who just sort of appear in it, mm-hmm. a couple of townspeople, and then a whole bunch of toughies from uh, New York City who've come up to lay waste in a in a Sopranos way. All these dark suits and Italian names and machine guns and actually they weren't wearing dark suits. They were wearing fresh off the rack plaids and, ah, and yes, uh, they wanted to fit in, right? <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, you still got your tag on your. Uh... On your sweater there. From a thematic place, there's not a whole lot to say about this gunfight other than that it's really fun and exciting. But the things that we pull out about this is that Roland looks at Eddie and sees Cuthbert again. And this fight sort of reminds him of Jericho Hill. Like, here's our last stand. It might very well be our last stand, but Eddie's giving it his all and he's laughing and he's... Mm-hmm. He he reminds me of Cuthbert again, and Roland really appreciates that. And it's almost like I've seen him grown, grow up so much, and I appreciate him as a gunfighter and a gunslinger. Yeah, and there are so many parallels. I mean, there's the constant personality thing with Eddie and Cuthbert as twins of a, of a sort. But in this battle, Eddie is shot in two places. One of them is arm, and the other is his lower leg. And the one in his leg, the bullet is is stuck in his leg, but the one in his arm, it goes through. So he's, and he also hit his head going through the door. Yep. So his scalp is cut open and a flap of skin's hanging down and there's blood covering half of his face. So he is a physically a wreck. And that's just how Roland describes us, or as we see in Roland's dream flashbacks of Jericho Hill, that Cuthbert's like, basically one arm is ruined. He's shooting with the arm that still works and Roland's holding him up. And there's that illustration in the book where they're in that final stand and Cuthbert is killed while he's laughing. Mm -hmm. And Roland sees this. He sees Eddie fighting through the pain, fighting past the injuries and willing his body as only a well-trained gunslinger might to still function and function effectively through all of this. All, all of these injuries that he's already received. That's, I think, the thing that impresses Roland the most. Yeah. And you've said, like, how many times are we going to hear Roland say, wow, <laughs> Eddie's really awesome. He's just like my old buddy Cuthbert, without it seeming a little bit droll. But I think that the compliment or the recognition of Eddie's talents and strengths here are warranted. He does accomplish some uh, incredible things in this fight despite all the injuries he sustained i wonder if we're gonna have to hear that too much longer because when we get to the end of this fight eddie thinks of a question that he wants to ask roland about and king inserts this line he never got the chance before the question occurred to him again death had slipped between them that seems like a pretty ominous line, Jay, that either Roland or Eddie's not going to make it. Yeah, that's a moderately fascinating line. <laughs> yeah. So they make it through this gunfight, though, both of they them. They do. Along with a friend, John Cullum. Mm-hmm. The less said about the other man and the two shopping ladies who are in the general store, the better. But John Cullum makes it, and it seems to be that the reason he makes it is because he has past experience as a military veteran, perhaps, as well as a clear respect for Roland and sort of understanding the situation. 
he takes orders from Roland and Eddie pretty quickly and realizes the stakes. And that seems to be one of the main reasons he survives this shootout. He's described as an older guy, but he's not elderly. You know, like maybe he's in his 50s or something. Right. So he's probably still spry enough that if you yell, duck, he will move with the speed that is required. And that's exactly what he does. When Roland says down, he drops to the floor and isn't shot. And everyone else is like, huh? Somebody talking? <laughs> and then it's a bloodbath. That makes sense. I would attribute that to, I, you know, without knowing who John Cullum is, he's the right age to be like a, a war veteran. Yep. Certainly, he's the right age at this time period in when the, where the book is set that he would have certainly been in the military. He's not young enough to have been military age after the draft ended. Right. So he would have had to have had some service and some military training. Even if he didn't serve in a war, he would have learned how to survive in a battlefield. Both Eddie and Roland pick up on that right away and respect him for that and immediately make use of him in their plans to get out of this disastrous ambush that they're in, mm -hmm. which they do. And then after the gunfight and scores of dead bodies, probably across this <laughs> sleepy little town that somebody's going to have to deal with, John takes them in a boat and gets them across a lake to a hideout, basically for them, you know, an old cabin where, that he owns, where they're going to to regroup and hopefully get Eddie healed and, and take their next steps. But before that happens, John tells them some Interesting stories about walk-ins, I think he calls them, who come through this section of town that seem to be, sometimes they're naked and sometimes they seem to come from another world. And first descriptions I saw of them, they seem to represent the Manny mm -hmm. from Roland's world because they're wearing old-fashioned clothes and beards, but uh, some of the naked ones, maybe not so much. It could have been a Manny that accidentally went through at the wrong time. And, and we also get pretty clear descriptions of slow mutants. Or maybe even just fearsome creatures that exist in like some ruined version of, of a world that kill anything that goes near it or can't survive in the atmosphere that we breathe because they exist in something that's like pure sulfur or something. Yeah. Every once in a while, something just pops through. And when they ask him for detail to like kind of map it out where these sightings appear, it's really obvious really quickly that it's in a very specific place and they're localized in a very small area. It's not like all over the country. It's like just one kind of spot right. in this town. So there's, there's something very special about this part of the world. Yep. And John Cullum attributes Roland and Eddie's arrival to be just, they're just two more of these walk-ins. Yep. And it makes sense, you know, that, they came through some magic door, and this is where everybody through the doors come through. So we end the section there. So a lot to come. We're about halfway through the book, and all the pieces are in place. We have not yet seen Jake and Father Callahan come through to New York City, and the baby hasn't come yet, but things are moving quickly, and we'll see how this all gets together in our next section. But before that, it's time for our fun stuff. All right, fun stuff. And we have quite a bit of fun stuff this week, I believe, including another ZZ Top reference. Anytime we can have ZZ Top is a good day. Why do you keep saying ZZ Top? I just will not ever understand that. There's a line I like a lot in this section of the book referring to the pulsing forge of the king, that it was 
an infection announcing itself to the sky. Mm. Just picturing a disease. Like, oh, I'm just an infected wound. Hey, hey, sky, here I am. <laughs> so you pick out these very literary turns of phrases by Stephen King. I'm going to pick up, pick out a sick burn that Roland gives to Andalini. <laughs> While they're in this sort of standoff on either side of, a, of of the general store, Roland says, you've forgotten the face of your father, which, as we know, is probably the worst insult that Roland could give somebody. But he follows it up with, you're a bag of shit with legs. Your own cod daddy is a man named Balazar, and you lick his dirty ass. The others know, and they laugh at you. Look at Jack, they say. All that ass looking only makes him uglier. <laughs> Ah, Roland. <laughs> it's like he doesn't say anything funny for four books in a row, and then he just comes out with all that ass licking. Just makes him uglier. And the funny thing about that is is that it really pisses off Andalini. Yeah, it hurts his feelings. Andalini like, says, Oh man. You got a mean mouth on you, mister. <laughs> Andalini's voice was level, but all the bogus good humor had gone out of it. But you know what they say about sticks and stones. I just love that they have this standoff with multiple weapons and sticks and stones may break my bones. Don't call me an ass licker. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say I'm ugly. Uh, I'll bring the mood of the room back down with another great line. I really liked how Roland's quest was buoyed by his dry and lusty determination. Mm. like that turn of phrase dry and lusty because I'm a simple man with simple pleasures I'll now go to the gunfire part of this Roland is able to shoot a grenade out of the sky which is fantastic I mean this just speaks to what a great eye and shot that Roland is that as they're getting ambushed these roughnecks have grenades that they start throwing and Roland just casually shoots it out of the sky before it could do any damage so what happens when you shoot a grenade that's being lobbed at you? Does it explode as soon as it's hit, do you think? Probably. It's gotta, right? Yeah, that's what I would think. The way I understand grenades to work is that once you let the spoon fly, it's like a five-second or ten-second fuse. So it's going to explode. So I guess if you took it and you hit it with a rock before that happened, it would explode immediately. Right, that's how I take it. So you'd still think there'd be shrapnel, but maybe it was far enough away that Roland was able to avoid that. So, Yeah, if you shoot it out of the air when it's 10 feet above your head, you're probably not going to be happy about the outcome. We get a lot of time with Detta in this. Yes. Every time um, Susanna kind of weakens a little bit, Detta comes forward and tries to help strengthen Susanna's resistance to Mia. So we get a couple of honky mafas here and there. Ah, uh, we haven't heard that for a while. Yeah, as fearsome and deadly and antagonistic as Detta often was in book two, having her back now is—it's almost like a, a comfort because we know that she can help Susanna in a way. There is a strength and, and hardness to her that Susanna kind of needs to fend off Mia as much as she can. When Detta shows up and she's throwing around the honky mafas and I'm just happy to see Detta around. And that that's it seems odd, you know, like like I used to be worried when Detta was around. Now I'm happy. She's on the side of angels now. It's all good. Yeah. All, all is forgiven. 
And then there's a another person in the general store where we meet John Cullum. I think it might be the store manager. When the shooting starts, he walks in and he says, what in the blue hell is this? <laughs> so, of course, I love it. This is so close to what in the blue fuck is, is going on around here. It's interesting that this wasn't just another F-bomb by, uh, by King. Maybe it's the blue thing that I like. I don't know. But it just, it, there's something that seems so particular and I've only ever encountered it in Stephen King books and movies that it must be something King does. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 6 of The Dark Tower, Song of Susanna, stanzas 8 through 10. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Jesus, Jay. (laughs) 